Welcome. Thank you to everyone joining us online and here at the ASU California Center at the historic Herald Examiner Building. With great respect, Zocalo Public Square acknowledges the Yuhaviatam, the first people of this ancestral and unceded territory of Yangna that we now know as downtown Los Angeles. We honor their elders, past and present, and the Yuhaviatam descendants who are part of the Gabrieleño Tongva and the Fernandeño Tataviam nations. We recognize that the Tongva are still here, and we are committed to lifting up their stories, culture, and community. As Ku'uyam, we recognize our responsibility and obligation to care for their land. I'm Erin Brown, and I'm the editorial director of Sokolo Public Square, an Arizona State University media enterprise. At Sokolo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. You can find us at ZocaloPublicSquare.org, on podcast platforms, and on YouTube. So please subscribe for our latest programs. Tonight, we present the first program in our two-year event and editorial series, How Should Societies Remember Their Sins, supported by the Mellon Foundation. Through September 2023, four public conversations and an array of original work published on our website will address this question, exploring how societies around the world collectively remember their transgressions and make attempts at repair, and how we might imagine new paths forward. We begin the series this evening by asking, what is our responsibility for our government's wars? I'm pleased to introduce our moderator, William Sturkey. William is a historian at the University of North Carolina and author of Hattiesburg, an American City in Black and White, winner of the 2020 Zocalo Book Prize. He will be our guide not only for this conversation, but for the other program in our series as well. Over to you, William. Good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to the first of four Zocalo panels about how should societies remember their sins. I just want to say, although obviously we're here in the year 2022, this is a very age-old question that every single society has engaged. And our society is currently engaged in this question in ways that might not be obvious. But major news issues, such as the killing of George Floyd, the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, even the hysteria over critical race theory are all bound in some way by this major question about how societies should remember their sins. And so of course we're here today, we've assembled here today to explore the difficult question of what is our responsibility for our government's wars. And in light of that question, Zocalo has invited an incredible team of thinkers and writers who have firsthand experiences with war and who have dedicated years to thinking about issues related to our prompt. Um, it would take me 30 minutes to introduce them fully, so I'm going to offer some brief introductions, um, and then we'll jump into our conversation. To my immediate left, Lieutenant General Robert Schmidl is a pilot with extensive, with extensive air operational flying experience, including missions in Iraq and Bosnia. He is currently a professor of practice 
in the School of Politics and Global Studies and a senior fellow at the Center of, on the Future of War at Arizona State. And he has published works in the fields of moral philosophy, social psychology, cybersecurity, and military history. Um, to his left is Noel Lapana, an Air Force veteran, having served in Afghanistan and an adjunct professor in the College of Social Work at the University of Kentucky. He also works as a regional prevention coordinator in the Center for Prevention Programs and Partnerships in the United States Department of Homeland Security. He is also a founding board member and current president of the David J. Draculic Art Foundation, which provides arts and recreation to military members, veterans, and their communities. Joining us virtually, I assume from New York City, is Farnaz Fasihi. She is the United Nations Bureau Chief for the New York Times and a former war correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. She has spent much of the past 20 years covering the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, as well as reporting on military conflicts in places such as North Korea, Syria, and a variety of issues in her native Iran. Um, Bob, Noel, and Farnaz have all published and spoken widely. Each has received numerous awards for their service, intellect, and activism in their dealings with, these, with some of the most important and difficult topics of the 21st century. Um, and welcome to what is our responsibility for our government's wars and what promises to be a rich and fruitful, although perhaps even difficult, uh, discussion. So as the moderator, I'm gonna lead with some, with some questions for each of our panelists, and then um, we're gonna open it up to questions from our audience, both in person and virtual. Um, so I would encourage you, if you're thinking of a question, then please go ahead and submit those to the chat if you are virtual, and please be prepared for those of us in person to stand up and ask your question as we get toward the end of our hour here um, today, okay? So I'm gonna go ahead and start with Bob. And so Bob, the first thing I wanna do is to sort of calibrate where we're at. There's some really big concepts that we're engaging with here. So I wonder if you could talk about how should we think of and define the term are, first of all, and even wars, what are our actual government wars, um, especially considering massive levels of dissent over, from our own citizens over some of the conflicts, such as Vietnam, the recent war in Iraq, and then also the fact that war has changed so much in the past 100 years. We don't necessarily declare war in the same way as we do, did with World War I or World War II, but yet there's obviously a lot of violence in the world today. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, so the question was, you know, what is our responsibility for the, for the government's wars? So the, the, the first thing, that the our, O-U-R, is, is uh, we, we probably ought to unpack that word to the extent, to, to try to understand the extent to which we, as citizens of a country, may or may not be responsible for what our government does in terms of, its, of going to war. And, and that's probably a different, um, uh, is, is probably a, a different thing to talk about than what the responsibility is. And, you know, when we first, you know, those of us in uniform, when we first start to think about the responsibility of the nation for wars, you know, we automatically start to think about the, the soldiers and Marines and sailors and et cetera, et cetera, that, that actually execute the wars. But there's a whole lot more that goes on than just that, right? It's what is our responsibility to the country with which we are at war with, right? So one of the things that's happened, though, I think over the last number of years that's changed the dynamic here is if, if we turn the clock back 
into the 1960s, and we see you know the Vietnam War and the and the extraordinarily unpopular war that was fought and the way it was fought, and we look at the at the numerous administrations on both sides of the aisle that contributed to the to the buildup in Vietnam and to the way the war was fought. That was the last war that we fought when we had conscription, right? And you, now you could argue that conscription affected, uh, tended to affect the demographics that were not in the highly educated, that the elites in many cases didn't serve, right? So after the Vietnam War, you know, there was a, there was a big movement to make the, to create a volunteer um, army, as it were. And I think that we need to understand maybe why we did that. And, and I think that a lot of that had to do with, the, with, for the same reason, and this is going to sound like a wild analogy, but the same reason that we tend to create and build slaughterhouses away from populated areas. Right? We try to civilize some of the things that we do in, and, and what, we, what was happening is, and there were people in the military that would refer to the, to the elite, to the Praetorian Guards, and were very proud of the fact that the military was taken from a very small slice of the demographic population, of the population that tended to be more educated, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, the downside of that is, of course, that the military can then tend to be separate from the population, you know, and for years we were telling ourselves we were a microcosm of the rest of the population, but in fact it's probably not exactly true. And now what happens is, it, I would suggest, it becomes easier for um, leadership to use the military because they're, quote, all volunteers and they're off in this other area over here. And they're not necessarily the people that live next door or, you know, Johnny's high school friend who got drafted, went to Vietnam, and never came back kind of thing. So the war tends, wars tend to be more separate from the way the rest of society sees it. And you can see this after 9-11 when everybody was getting geared up to go overseas. Um, you know, the leadership uh, was saying, you know, go to the mall, go shopping, lead a normal life to the rest of the country. So. The fact that, that we are engaged in, in wars of choice, which is what they all have been for the most part since the Second World War, um, it, I just think that, that as we think about what we, what our responsibility is to those wars, we probably need to back up and think about how we got ourselves into a situation where war has become the defining way that this government and this country operates. We, I mean, just think about it. We talk about you know, the, uh, an NFL game, you know, there's a war going on down on a 50-yard line. It's, it's the, the terminology has permeated this so that we put this in kind of a black and white sense where we're either at war or we're not at war. And we, it becomes the conceptualization of how we think about trying to solve uh, problems, if you will. So our, all of us, responsibility, it goes much deeper than in my mind, than simply raising your hand and saying, I'm opposed to that war or I'm in favor of that war. It, it is, there's a much deeper, I think, uh, uh, concept that we need to unpack here, which is how is it that we've gotten ourselves to the point that we find it so easy to go to war? You know, there was a congressman from New York a couple of years ago that 
who was a veteran who had fought in Vietnam, who suggested that we bring back the draft, and it was a huge hue and cry. Some of it came from the uniforms, the senior leadership, and it was a very quick way to make yourself very unpopular in the tank by suggesting that's not such a bad idea because it was going to bring in a different demographic. It was going to bring in people that the military thought were beneath them. But what it would do is it would connect the country to the rest of the country in a way that I think would, would maybe, hopefully, uh, provide a deeper dialogue about why we're engaged in going to do the things we're doing. So. Yeah. Um, I want to unpack some of the things that you were talking about and go over to uh, Noel. Noel, I think that a lot of people have a misunderstanding or even just a different perception of sort of the social contract between civilians, their elected officials, and soldiers. From the veterans' point of view and from the point of view of the folks that you work with, the veterans that you work with, could you explain that social contract in terms of how veterans see themselves in relation to the citizens that elect the leaders that decide to send them to war? And what does that mean for how we should understand our collective responsibility for wars? Sure, William. Um, actually, just before we got up here, I, I was telling Robert I read some of his stuff, and I want to go to a model that's called positioning theory that might help provide some construct around that, that implied social contract. And, Begins with that speech active and individual volunteering, like you said, to take the oath um, to support and defend the Constitution. And by their doing, you make this immediate separation into becoming a combatant from civilians who non-combatants. And therein, you have uh, positions us very differently. You have an expansion of rights on the military individual's part to uh, wage violence on the civilian's behalf. Um, you have a duty, obligation to obey the laws of armed conflict, um, the rules of engagement. You fall under a different standard of, of justice and discipline under Uniform Code of Military Justice. And, uh, you know, but part of that contract, and I think what is absent oftentimes when we talk about the response, our OUR responsibility uh, for the government wars is the role of the, the, the free society in which, as General Schmidl said, disproportionate number, disproportionately small number of Americans serve in the military and are waging that violence on, at the direction of, of our policy leads. And I make that distinction of the policy leads being, you know, in that political realm. And, you know, again, to, to remark on his comments, it's, it's far too easy to draw the sword, the American sword from the scabbard and way too difficult and time consuming to, to return it. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that, you know, from the veteran standpoint, um, we want to believe that everyone's connected to his or her democracy, that the machine works the way that it should, that people have access to their elected officials and that what they say from their uh, congressional district and through their through the political process makes its way to inform how policy is brought out. And uh, I don't think from lived experience veterans feel that. Yeah. Um, and certainly not on, on the back end coming home either. It just adds to the complexities of this Odyssean journey where you know, you're supposed to return to the sense of peace and safety and instead you're launched into this second, if you will, no man's land. Yeah. 
Um, I want to pick up on a similar line with a different type of question to uh, Farnaz. You know, one of the things that, that Bob mentioned was the draft during Vietnam, which, you know, most young American men were not drafted. But everybody had to have an answer, or everybody knew a neighbor, or had a, a brother, or, you know, whatever that was. But this war seems, or sorry, the, the recent wars in Afghanistan and Iraq seem a bit different. Um, Americans are used to the worst fighting in the world not occurring on our soil. Obviously, World War I, World War II, so on and so forth. But there's a detachment, a level of detachment almost in the last 20 years between not just veterans and soldiers fighting the war, but also journalists who are also serving there and trying to serve the democracy as well through their reporting. What is that? I mean, Farnaz, do you see that level of attachment? And what, what implications do you think that has for this, this big question that we're facing? Um, hi, and uh, thank you for uh, inviting me. And it's sorry I couldn't be with you in person. It's good to see you all. Uh, it's a really good question. Um, you know, when war correspondents or uh, civilians who, actually, who, who like the military, uh, volunteer to go to war zones because with the conviction that what we do matters because we are independent observers of conflict. We are there to uh, dissect and witness uh, what, what uh, is going on on the ground because the participants of the war, whether they're the military of, of either country or the governments, uh, have uh, an agenda and, uh, and want to present the conflict uh, in their own interests. So we're there to see on the ground what's happening at a great cost, of course, to our physical and mental health and, um, uh, and, and risks that we take. Uh, as a conflict reporter, I um, going to Afghanistan and Iraq and uh, spending many years there, I would always come back uh, and land uh, at JFK and, and uh, come out thinking that America has the gift of geography, that you know it, its military wages all these wars, but we're so geographically distant from these countries that that the general population doesn't really feel like they're at war. You know, everyone's, like you said, going to the mall, going out to dinner, uh, doing about going about their ordinary lives. And I think uh, with the ex exception of military families, uh, veterans who are fighting their journalists or, or diplomats or whoever's serving there, uh, everybody else doesn't really feel uh, like they're at war. Here we are waging basically in Iraq, uh, ruining, de destroying any semblance of ordinary life for the Iraqis where car bombs were going off, where the act of uh, putting gas in your car or sending your child to school, or even for me going to the supermarket was uh, a Russian roulette. Could you be killed by a car bomb? Could you be uh, injured uh, by, you know, uh, incoming fire in, in, your, in your hotel, outside of your hotel? I served as the Baghdad bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal in Iraq for four years. My bureau was demolished by car bombs three times. One of the times I was in the house uh, and another time, if I hadn't been, I would have been killed because, you know, the, the hotel building nearly collapsed. Uh, so, you know, that that kind of disconnect where there's these extreme intense battles and there's an entire population. I think Bob pointed out to a really good point where, you know, often these wars are viewed through the prism of the military and, and the politics behind it and, and what drives it. And very little attention, even in the media, uh, is given to uh, the, the, the people of these countries. What do our wars do to them? What kind of long lasting effects do they have? And it becomes a, 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 
sort of a, a virtual uh, cycle of crisis where um, one thing leads to another, leads to another. We go to Iran to, to get rid of WMDs. The WMDs are not there. Then we're there to, to bring democracy. That you know, Then we're there to fight an insurgency with the Sunnis. Then Sunni-Shia war breaks out. We're there to control a civil war. Then ISIS. So one thing like an avalanche keeps leading to, what, to the other, changing the reasons why we're at war without much uh, uh, deliberation or really thought about what are we doing to the people of these countries? Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask a question for whoever wants to take it. But one of the things about like, the war in Vietnam and the war in Iraq is that both wars were fairly popular in American polling, right? The majority of Americans supported the United States action in both cases. But then, of course, that changed throughout the course of the war, these long wars, these long conflicts. And by the end, it had gone, they'd both gone from popular um, military conflicts to tragic ones. So what do you do with that then when the nature of the war is constantly changing in and of itself and it ultimately goes in these cases from a war that's widely supported by the population, although there is of course dissent, but then to one that's, um, that's seen as tragic by so many people? Sure. I, I don't think that the, the nature of the conflict changes. I think the characteristics of the conflict change, but in both cases, so in the, in, the, in the case of Vietnam, we, we now know that the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution and the supposed firing of, on, of the U.S. Navy ship Turner Joy was probably not all that it was projected to be. And so, but the thought was that, again, in that time frame, we were thinking about containing communism. The whole issue of the domino effect came into theory came into effect that if Vietnam falls and everybody else is going to fall. What really causes that war to one of the major turning points in that war, as you're well aware, was the Tet Offensive in 1968, and the Tet Offensive was actually a tactical defeat on the part of the uh, of the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese. But it was a strategic victory for them. And what happened is that uh, they, you know, there were pictures of uh, Viet Cong running through Saigon, which was supposed to be a safe area, throwing bombs and shooting things up. And then uh, back to the issue about the war correspondence, there is this this great footage of Walter Cronkite. And in in those days, uh, the the people like Walter Cronkite, he was in that one year. 67 or 8, the most admired man in America. And he stood up in, with a backdrop of, of what was happening in, in Tet during the offensive and basically said, they've been lying to us. They haven't told us the truth. This is what's happening. Tell me we're winning this. How can we be winning this? Look at this. The problem is that the military creates metrics to determine whether they're winning or losing, right? And then, and then we drive towards those metrics in a way that, that shows progress. Counterinsurgencies, and again, the, the problem with Vietnam and the problem with Iraq are fundamentally the same. We, we the, the government that, that decided, uh, it was the Bush administration in one case, and then a combination of the Kennedy, Johnson, uh, administration and part of the Eisenhower administration, the other one, did not understand the nature of the f conflict that they were getting involved in. And try we try to paint these things very simplistically as us against them, 
And it's not that way. There's never any simplistic answer. And we, we were involved in a counterinsurgency from the very beginning. And in another life, I was doing some operational planning for the leadership in the Pentagon. And I was asked what we were talking about trying to, to, um, to how long it was going to take to get to Baghdad, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, Mr. Secretary, that, I don't think that's the problem. I said, the problem is that we're making an assumption. And the assumption is that they're going to throw rose petals at our feet when we get there. And that assumption is driving everything. And if that turns out to be incorrect, then, then all bets are off. We have no plan B. And so the, the nature of that conflict, the characteristics of that conflict in, in Iraq were caused by, just like they were in Vietnam, a number of political decisions that were made. The reason that we had that the US Army and Marine Corps didn't have any MRAPs is because they had never, we had never thought we were going to fight another counterinsurgency, that we were going to be involved in a, in, a, in a war like that. No, we were going to fight a lightning war like we did in Iraq, and we were going to race across the desert at the speed of the heat, and we needed light vehicles that were lightly armored that could go fast and were very maneuverable. In Vietnam, we ran into very similar things with airplanes. We had built these airplanes, the F-4 and others, that were going to fight the Soviet bomber horde that was going to come. And they were completely, uh, they, they were not the best tool for the job that we were trying to do in Vietnam. But, but the fact of the matter is that those wars, wars generally start out being popular um, because we whip up all of the you know, nationalistic, nativistic tendencies that we all have. And once we get into them, the US population, as we know, we don't have much strategic patience. Um, you know, if you look at what the Brits did and the way they conducted their operations in Northern Ireland, it was over years and years and years and years. And the staying power of the US has never been one of our strong points. And that's why wars like Desert Storm are custom made for the way the military likes to fight. There's no civilian population. They're relatively bloodless. They're out in the middle of the desert, and they stop at a certain time. We're not going into Iraq. And so you know, that President Bush obviously had a very deep understanding of the psyche and what he needed to do to maintain the support. Now, he didn't get reelected because the economy went down the tubes. But again, so I think problem number one is not understanding the nature of the conflict about that you are going to embark on and not having not going into this with your eyes wide open. We certainly didn't do that in Iraq. We went in there with a number of assumptions that were not proven. And then for, as, uh, as she mentioned, you know, we were first it was WMD. Well, there was no WMD. There never was. And, you know, and now we're in this, that was a, that whole war was fought because of um, decisions that were made by a number, one or two or one individual that were personal and not necessarily related to the facts on the ground. And it was a desire to prove that the US was back and that we were going to have a major presence in the Mideast. And instead, uh, it turned out to be just the opposite. So same thing in Vietnam, right? We, 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 we were going to go in there, and we were going to be the, 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 the savior. So, so what do we do? We initially support putting a guy named Diem in as the uh, president of South Vietnam. 
well, he's a Catholic in a Buddhist country, so how's that going to work, right? I mean, just basic questions about the culture and understanding what's happening um, were, uh, are things that we, we tend not to, to be as aware of. So yeah. I, I think that's probably the... In light of that, um, for Nas and Noel, how do you evaluate our ability to hold those, those leaders who make those decisions responsible? I mean, how have we done that as a country, and how could we possibly as a society, um, responsibly approach this question if we don't even hold the leaders who drew us into those wars in the way that they did responsible? I'll defer to Farnaz first. <laughs> well, you know, my job as a journalist has always been to inform, inform the public, inform policymakers, uh, in the hope that uh, the, the information that we provide and the witnessing that we do will um, maybe change perspectives, maybe change, um, maybe make in a democracy, make the people uh, with their votes or with their uh, civic activism hold uh, those officials accountable and uh, lead to uh, the, the kind of questions that need to be, uh, to be asked. Uh, I don't uh, think that we've always succeeded in that. I, I think that um, for a lot of us, the Reef who were in Iraq, uh, you know, President Bush getting reelected, uh, even though the war was such a disaster, was uh, was very puzzling, and and uh, we thought sort of, uh, are we not clear on what it, have we not written as clearly about what this what the disaster this war has been, the wrong uh, reasons why we came here, and what's what's really happening? Um, in 2004, at the right before the the, the second um, presidential election of, of George Bush, I wrote a personal email. I'll just give you this as an example uh, from Iraq to a group of my friends, uh, basically saying what I um, had been reported, but in a journalistic way, not in really an emotional way uh, that I would if I was speaking candidly to my friends. Where I basically said, uh, "This was a disaster." Elected officials are Bush is lying. Uh, that it is not going the way. We're not building democracy. Iraqis are terrified to even go and vote. And I uh, have to. I don't even know why I'm here because every I can't really report. Every time I go out, uh, you know, you know, I have to witness horrible things and uh, and whatnot. And that that personal email turned into a global chain mail. Back then, we didn't have Twitter or Facebook or social media. People were emailing it, and it was. It landed on uh, the front page of, of many newspapers from Brazil to South Africa, translated to, to a lot of languages and became, uh, you know, a, a, a sensation because for some reason our journalism wasn't getting through to people. It wasn't what we were writing in our objective tone, in our carefully worded uh, journalistic pieces, wasn't getting the disaster of the war across in a way that a personal first person piece was. And, and again, that was also a lesson to me uh, of, of, the, of perhaps the limits of, of what we can do uh, as reporters. And I often think uh, if we can inform the way we hope when we're there or, or lead to policy changes or to perspective, maybe what we do will matter for history. Maybe the documentation that we do will make people who are planning other wars look back and and read and learn, draw lessons from this, so that this, uh, so that the same mistakes are not repeated. Yeah. Well, did you want to chime in? Sure. I think that um, you know we. I, I do agree with with elections being one one way that you know we voice that that or 
enact that accountability for these leadership decisions. But I think that there's got to be some kind of interim step in there where the public, again, has access and has some kind of relative power to hold these, these policy decisions and policymakers accountable. If you sit on an appropriations committee or House Intelligence Committee or you know, they all sit on a committees where, which is where a lot of the action is actually, you know, done in government. And you, you failed, as in any other profession, you should probably be relieved and, and replaced. Um, if you don't make it, you know, we can't elect you out in this, this period of the election cycle, you get, you know, move to a committee. Um, I, I'm not sure what, what the right answer is, but I, I do think like what Farnaz is saying in terms of looking and, and, and what Bob was saying about you know, metrics and you know, accurate reporting, when it, we, you can't measure something or you can't measure what's important, which is often intangible, what, you're, what is happening to the humanity of the individuals, to the dignity of the people that we are trying to preserve and uh, you know, make life better for and what it's doing for our own service members and their sacrifices, we tend to gravitate towards the things that we can measure, which are mm -hmm. these metrics, right? And then we march towards those. And I, I think it's, it, it, it's incumbent on, on journalists to be able to do their jobs to point to those things and point to that, that deviation and say, we need to get back to these things. And when there is an absence of strategy, people need to be held accountable for that. I want to revisit briefly um, one of Farnaz's points about history and thinking about where you might, wh where your reporting might stand in the broader context of United States or global history. You know, we've, we've talked about these pretty obvious comparable points between Vietnam and Iraq, which everybody's probably heard. But the thing is, after the Vietnam War, and even during to a certain extent, with the release of the Pentagon Papers, and then of course all the literature and film and history that came from that, we still had the Iraq War. So I wonder if, you know, with, we could fill an ocean's worth of ink with reporting and history mm. and all the mistakes from Iraq, but didn't we just do this, I mean, didn't we do the same thing with Vietnam 50 years ago? So I wonder what could be different this time so that there can actually be lessons learned, or, or maybe I'm underestimating the lessons that were learned. I want to throw that back to Farnas. I mean, I think, um Civic engagement is really important. I think education, arts, movies, books, all of these, uh, any, any, in any way that we can educate the public. Because again, in a democracy, what the public thinks, how the public votes, how engaged the public is, um, you know, with the government and with the society is really important. Um, with Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, a lot of journalists who were there, including myself, wrote books because we thought a, a lot of our reporting uh, wasn't getting in the paper. We had a lot, we had witnessed a lot more, so we wanted to document it in a more in-depth way. Uh, many veterans have written books. Some of them have written beautiful fictional books that have done really well and have resonated with the public. There have been uh, so I think the role of arts, and and I hope that in schools, I really hope that in the curriculum of our education in schools and colleges, these wars are, are uh, revisited and, and taught and uh, talked about because they are future voters and future leaders who need to be really well informed. Yeah. So, so, so I agree with everything you said. Here's the, the I think, the challenges that, that we need to, to address. So the use of the military 
and the war structure, if you will, the structure of war is actually, it is the, 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 the word I'm looking for, it, it is the vehicle through which power flows in the government, okay? So, you know, if you get a chance and you want to do something this weekend and sort of dive into some of Michel Foucault's stuff on knowledge and power, and you'll get a better appreciation, I think, of where I'm trying to take this. But there's structures that, through which power flows in an organization, in, in an institution. And in government, that has become making wars. That is, the military is the way a president is able to, to use the power that's that office. So here's part of the challenge. We came out of the Second World War, which was, for all intents and purposes, not an existential war for the United States, but certainly was for all of our allies. And then we found ourselves involved in Korea, which was the first kind of thing we stumbled into, right? And we called it a police action. We didn't call it a war. And we had people with two very different conceptions of what was happening over there. You had MacArthur, who thought that he was in charge and that this was an existential conflict, and then didn't turn out to be the case. Vietnam was also a war of choice. That was not, a, that was not an existential uh, threat to the United States. The interesting part about that is that the, a lot of the leadership, some of the leadership that wound up in the Pentagon in uniform were folks that had written very critical uh, things when they were in grad school about the way the Vietnam War had been executed. Yet we made some very similar kinds of mistakes. And part of the challenge is that, that is not understanding where the structures of power are. And so the United States military, when we talk about having a, 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 a volunteer force, in some ways, we are happy to say to the rest of the country, look, we'll do the dirty work for you. Just leave us alone and we'll be okay and we are separate from that. We will do this and we will make your life, you don't have to worry about this. The challenge is when you extrapolate that to the political level, now what happens is the political leadership says, for all these reasons, which you shouldn't even ask me about because it's not your job in uniform, we're gonna to go to war with country X. So that's the, that's the goal. You just figure out how we're gonna do it. And in the military, we're actually kind of comfortable there, right? Because we're comfortable in that space. We know how to take big guidance and we know how to change it. The point that was made earlier is really prescient. In, in, in Vietnam and in Iraq, we went from, from one goal to another to another. The mission kept changing. Why? Because the political leadership was looking at what was happening in there and the end state became less and less achievable given all of the resources, et cetera, and quite frankly, given the way that we executed the war, right? The end state in Vietnam was to democratize, if you will, uh, Vietnam. The general that was in charge, Westmoreland, decided the best way to do that was with firepower and attrition. We're just gonna kill them all. That way they can't, we can't have an insurgency if all the insurgents are dead. Okay, that's, that's a theory. Obviously, it didn't work out swimmingly, and so, you know, there's, there's, we still, in my mind, haven't been able to make that connection to where we at the military, senior military level, are actually creating operational designs that will, in fact, enable a strategic end state. And that end state, whatever it is, is not one that just that somebody 
just thought up. It was, it's an end state that has been mulled over and it has been worked on, uh, on you know, until it is what we believe as a country ought to be done. We have given the executive branch of the government great power to execute wars because we, have, we hold this national myth that the only way to, that we can keep our place in the world is we have to react so quickly that we don't really have time to go back to the Congress and besides, they're not really involved anyway. Okay, so they may have a point there. But even with a resolution to go to war in Iraq, there was no end state to this thing, right? So how do, how do, we, how do we do that? I mean, okay. And now it becomes, you know, it becomes kind of a, you know, no pun intended, kind of a manhood issue. Well, okay, so I'm in support of the war, and away we go. And uh, it, it's, I think that 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 is is fundamentally where we are. Vietnam was a was a was a generation apart, and uh, 1972 there was a guy named Robert Cromer who was a State Department guy who wrote a book. I wrote a book, I wrote a thesis, it was about 80 pages, and it was called The Bureaucracy Wins Again. And it was published in 1972. And I had a stack of those, about 10 of them on my desk when I was doing some concept development stuff, force development stuff. And I used to hand them to everybody that walked in the office. And I said, read this, we're doing it all over again. This is 2005 and nothing has changed. We are making all the same mistakes. How in the heck can we do that? How did we find ourselves in this situation? We, the, the military, but, but the bigger question is how did we as a country find ourselves there? Yeah. It's had a terrible flashback to graduate school, somebody telling me to go read Foucault on the weekends. <laughs> um, <laughs> I want to go to... Uh, well, you can read it in English. You don't have to read it in French. Fair That'd enough. I want to go to um, Noel next, and then I wanna, um, we're going to jump into some, some questions coming from our audience. Well, in, in your work, you talk about this concept of moral injury. Mm -hmm. could, could you unpack that for me? And, and if I could, I'm going to ask you a two-part question. So just first of all, tell us about moral, moral injury and what that means in light of our conversation. And then also, do you think that it's fair to measure a society by how they treat their veterans? What does that mean exactly? What are our responsibilities? What I'm really trying to crack open is what is our responsibility to the veterans who went and fought the war specifically? Sure. Uh, so, Dr. Brett Litz and a few other academics uh, kind of converge on this idea and definition for moral injury being the act or omission of an act um, that goes against one's uh, personally held deeply spiritual or, or moral beliefs. Um, so, and, and the military certainly doesn't own the, the market on this, this affliction, right? So, um, it's not a medical condition. Um, it, has attributes and symptoms that, that mimic or overlap with what we know as post-traumatic stress. But some of the outlying um, attributes include uh, social isolation, uh, unresolved guilt, unresolved shame, um, unresolved uh, loss, and not just uh, survivor's guilt and loss, but that of identity and purpose and, and meaning making. So um, the the, the question about is, was, was, is it fair to, to ask, or, or what do we, how do we, what do we owe the veterans then? Is, was that what you were, sure, the second yeah. part? I mean, what does that say about our broader society, the way that we treat veterans? Sure. Um, I, you know, Sebastian Younger wrote a book called Tribe, and he makes a lot of, uh, uh, you know, observations there, and he talks a bit about this, 
you know, he does, I don't think he, he mentions moral injury, but a lot of the, the language that he uses alludes to, to it and post-traumatic stress. And it, it you know, I, I gravitate towards it because I, I think we're treating veterans for post-traumatic stress and we're actually in need of moral injury care. Mm. And um, back, you know, to, to Sebastian Younger's work, his, his mm -hmm. observation might be, the problem might be with us as a society. Um, and, you know, for veterans, I, I don't think that we miss, you know, combat and, and the hardships. We can do that. We can, you know, Farnaz, you've, you've, you've been in rural countries and in combat, and as has uh, General Schmittle here. And, um, you know, we, we can endure that. But what we can't do is be either dead inside or be made to feel unnecessary or, or useless. And um, having a, I guess, lacking a, a, an avenue to um, atone for moral injury and to be part of that, that reparation and reconciliation and healing. And, you know, th those are hard things to measure, right? Yeah. Uh, we're treating a medical condition. We can go after symptoms and symptom reduction. But some of the harder questions, I think that I think veterans, you know, want and need help through the arts. Uh, Farnaz and, and through different mediums of expression is how do I, you know, I, I know how to die for my country. How do I live for my country? Yeah. And it's difficult to stay connected to a society that doesn't ask a whole lot of its members, um, much of m many of its members other than you know, even in journalists who sacrificed uh, their, you know, their comfort and their, their time with their families and, and sometimes their lives, the military to make huge sacrifices um, on behalf of society that you know, again, is disconnected from the wars that its, its government's prosecuting. So I think that, you know, veterans want to, we're okay coming back to a society that is vested in its own democracy, be worth our sacrifice. Let me ask just a quick follow-up before we go to the audience. Do you think that the term moral, or the idea of moral injury can be applied to society broadly? I do, um, and I, in my work, I use the veteran space as a, a jumping off platform. It's the, the pain I know and like the demographic I'm, I'm familiar with. But, you know, just to give you some non-military examples, um, it can happen in, you know, talk about human trafficking or, or uh, you know, sexual abuse survivors, um, an individual who gets trafficked and is arrested because he or she has brought someone else into that trafficking ring that's kind of gross, right? Like, you got arrested for being a prostitute, but you're dual experienced survivors. So that individual is, is a survivor of trauma, an individual of uh, surviving moral injury because he or she is going against something that is you know, against their moral code, that their moral architecture can't withstand by bringing someone else into that ring. And then also betrayed and, and moral injured by an institution that's supposed to be set up to protect them and then you have an officer who may or may not agree with what he or she is doing, but is still you know, making that act of arrest. Yeah. Uh, in the medical field, people make these decisions on a daily basis. You know, who gets care, who doesn't, who gets put on a ventilator, who gets triaged a certain way. Um, those, those are all you know, examples outside the military. And I think that you know, when we talk about moral injury, and these attributes of the sense of betrayal or loss of trust in systems and institutions, that's what we, we might be feeling now. Well, that makes me think of a lot of different things. Um, I'm gonna jump to the 
questions from the audience, though. Um, <clears throat> one of the first ones is, can the panel further comment on the problem of Congress abdicating their responsibility on declaring war specified <laughs> in the Constitution? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that, um, the theory of the case was that if the Congress had to declare war, that you would have the kind of dialogue that we were talking about at the strategic level about why we're going to war, what the goals are, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that's happened since the end of the Second World War is, is increasingly the wars that we get involved in are not declared. They're, uh, and, and quite frankly, the best characterization of this was by uh, uh, a gentleman named Gerasimov, who is the senior general in Putin's uh, military. And he addressed a class at their uh, equivalent of their war college a couple of years ago. And he said, in the future, wars will not be declared. They will simply be an increase in the level of violence. And if you think about what's happening today in, in Ukraine, if you think about what's happening in other places, that's, that's what happens. So part of the challenge is we, we have this mindset that, that the normal state of affairs in the world is peace. And war is an aberration, right? And that's, that's kind of the national mythology. And that when we go to war, we have this dialogue, we get everybody together, the Congress declares the war, and off we go. Because we're still thinking about the Second World War, right? What a lot of us don't remember is that the draft passed by one vote. So before, before the war, I mean, so we haven't always been this, this, you know, it hasn't always been that way, the good war. So if wars are not declared, then a couple of things happen, right? First of all, we realized this in Korea, we realized it in Vietnam and spades, is that when wars are not declared, the combatants are not under any obligation to even attempt to abide by the Geneva Convention when it comes to the treatment of POWs. So that is one of the challenges. And what you've seen lately, you know, I mean, there was no, quote, declaration of war in, our, in Ukraine. Putin simply went into Ukraine. And I, and I think that is one of the things that the, the, the nature of the way we get into conflicts is changing. And the, you know, the way that our governing structure is set up is not uh, prepared for that. And again, if you think about the fact that I would contend that peace is not the norm that there is some level of violence that is always happening, that there is some level of conflict, and that it spikes up when, when big events happen and it comes down again. But this, to think that we're going to go back to this, to what we believe to be the good old days in the 1930s when, okay, so there was a depression and a lot of people were out of work, but at least we weren't at war. No, we weren't, but the rest of the world in many places was. And now we are so globally connected that that's all a part of it. So I, Again, I, I, um, I, I, I think that, uh, uh, I mean, it's a great question, and a lot of people are asking it, and it certainly is an abrogation of, their, of what is in the Constitution, of their author or what is expected of them, their authority, but that's probably why. If, if, if there are folks in the audience, in, in our live audience, um, and you have questions, please feel free to line up toward the right of the stage where we have a, a microphone. Um, I wanted to ask the, the panel also, or I didn't want to ask them really a question from the chat, but so how should we think about the people living in the countries where the United States has gone to war? 
I know that's a very broad question. There's a lot of implications that are, you know, immigration policy, uh, policy refugees, financial, economic, whatever you want to take a stab at. But um, how should the United States think about those populations that are often very in need now because of military action performed by the United States? Should, should I answer that? <laughs> sure, for now. You... I've dedicated so much of my time in war zones focused on the populations. Um, I think we have to understand that wars happen to people. They don't just happen to the military or to the governments. And they can have, they uh, not only uproot and uh, affect lives as they're happening, but they can have generational effects and long lasting effects long after we are gone, as we are seeing in Afghanistan, where after the chaotic exit last August, what's happened to the um, lives of Afghans who were uh, who have remained in Afghanistan, you know, girls can't go to school past sixth grade, women can't work. Um, all the gains that we had defined uh, and, and achieved to some extent in Afghanistan were completely lost. So these are generational or, or, the, or, or families that have uh, ha have been forced to, to migrate or they're the lucky ones, but the, the difficulty that, that goes with that um, as well. So I think we have to be very clear at eye, I think as, as the general said about the consequences of these wars, not just for, yes, for our military, for our government, but also for millions and millions of people who are um, the receivers uh, of this conflict uh, in these countries that we, where we go. We can always leave. Even as a journalist, I knew no matter how much of a risk and how much in danger I was, I could always leave. But uh, the Iraqis, the Afghans, the Syrians could not leave. And, and uh, that is something that I think we have to be, uh, that has to go into our decision making and, uh, and to try to be a little bit more responsible uh, for, in, in, in case of Afghans, you know, uh, processing the visas, offering more support for, for the families that are here. Uh, it, but, but all of that doesn't happen. I mean, you know, how, how many millions of Iraqis uh, were forced to, to be displaced uh, and never found a, a way to safety to the United States? Even, even translators, uh, employees of uh, the US military are now having a difficult time uh, getting any sort of support. So I think we, I think we need to, to really understand with a very clear eye that we are talking about uh, upending millions uh, of lives uh, for generations. And is it worth, and then ask the question, is it worth it? Are these wars worth it? Yeah. Pranas, can I just ask one follow-up? There are yeah. people in this country who very much supported, you know, wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, whatever, and who now would, would you know, wouldn't ask that question, have no interest in asking that question. Why do you think that is? I think because it's really hard to admit that uh, your country uh, has done wrong and to question the idea of America's exceptionalism on the world stage. This idea that uh, the democratic values, the human rights values that we that are so highly regarded in this country and are uh, uh, and we aspire to and, and we want to, to in many ways genuinely be a role model uh, don't always apply when we're in, in battlefields. And I, and I think that's a difficult thing for um, a, a population, for citizens of a country 
to uh, come to terms with. So sometimes it's easier to ignore it, to deny it, than to actually really confront it. Yeah, so just make one quick comment. So as you were talking, I was reminded of a couple of things. We had a plan at the end of the Second World War called the Marshall Plan, where we invested what would today be billions and billions of dollars in Europe to get it back on its feet again. We did the same thing in Japan. We understood the culture of Europe. We understood, the, the, we understood those countries. We had many people in this country that had come from the countries in Europe that we were trying to. We didn't understand the Vietnamese. We didn't understand and don't understand the culture of the Iraqis or the Afghan, Afghanis. Some people do, but it's such a small minority that there's not. So maybe one of the responsibilities that we have that we never talk about is you know, this goes back to Colin Powell's famous uh, expression, you know, that, uh, hey, you break it and you own it. So how do we do that? You know, what, what, so when we, you know, how do, how do we create that kind of a dialogue that says, look, we don't understand the culture of that country. I, I mean, I, I, when we got ready to do this, it was clear the leadership did not understand the culture. And we didn't understand the nature of what we were getting involved in. And there certainly was no thought about if this goes wrong, what do we owe the people of Iraq? What are we trying to do here? You know, is it just another fat guy with a mustache? I mean, what what, are we, what, what is this whole thing about? And so maybe having some kind of a dialogue about that, you know, and again, you know, people will say, well, in the case of Afghanistan, the corruption was so endemic. I got all that. And we didn't know that. I mean, this is, you know, we're supposed to be, the, you know, the best and brightest and smartest people on the planet, and we can't figure that out. And, but I think your comment is spot on, though. When we, when we find things like that that cause us to question the myth of our exceptionalism, we just don't want to deal with it. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's too bad, because we do need to deal with it. Noel, did you want to hop in? Um, I, I do. I, you know, just from service members' perspective, I think that um, there needs, in, in this larger question about like what is our responsibility, I, I think there needs to be a, a way for veterans to have input and for their voices to be heard um, to affect policy, affect culture, and then touch the lives of, um, of our citizenry about what they've experienced in warfare. Um, because if we are doing, we are managing violence on your behalf, we are managing violence on behalf of the government, um, to Farnaz's point, um, you know, is this worth it? And there's not a, a, a good way, in, in my opinion, and not a good way to hear the voices of my colleagues, my fellow veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan, to speak to what we've seen, done, failed to do, um, in moments of crisis and moments of terror and while conducting ground combat. I can tell you that combat, ground combat is uh, the most horrific but also most beautiful thing in humanizing and dehumanizing thing at the same time. Um, and I want to ensure that throughout this dialogue, I, I, I really want to express my appreciation for our service members and to inform you all of how proud you should be of your young men and women, your sons and daughters, who we put an incredible amount of uh, 
of moral decision-making, um, you know, responsibility on their shoulders, whether they're being watched or not. Um, one instance in my experience, my unit got in a firefight, took a couple prisoners that we didn't have to take. They were, we would have been, these, this fire team would have been absolutely uh, in, within the laws of armed combat and rules of engagement to, to kill these insurgents and did not uh, ensured that they were given their Qurans, their prayer rugs um, on time, that all the food that we were giving them fell within their dietary restrictions. I'm talking about E4s and E5s, people who aren't even old enough to rent a car, um, doing this in the middle of Musakala, Afghanistan at night with no adult supervision around. Um, I had the privilege of sitting with the 2-1 Marines in December working with, um, under uh, Jake Rademacher and uh, Brothers at War, sponsored by the Gary Sinise Foundation, um, with the 2-1 Marines in Pendleton who were there in Kabul. And again, to sit with these young 20-somethings who uh, were acting on your behalf in the most humane ways under extenuating circumstances uh, would really fill you with, with pride in what I think, um, you know, and, and William, we talked a little bit uh, last week about post-war legacy. What is the utility of the military? What is the utility? What is the purpose of, of the veteran post-service? And I think part of this legacy is that we are a moral reserve from which the nation should and can draw from, but there has to be a way for us to, to offer that and for the citizenry and, and the political body to draw that from. Yeah. I think we just have time for one final question, but I'll, I'll just remind everybody that's here there's going to be a short reception um, afterwards so we can mill about and talk more then. Thank you. Uh, the focus of uh, what you've just been talking about uh, is, is very close, and my sympathies and respect go to you very deeply. Uh, I'd like to draw back uh, from a much higher perspective and ask about uh, something came to mind um, uh, just uh, 30 minutes ago, a phrase called wag the dog. And, and it is, in my opinion, the fact uh, uh, that we have to address the likelihood of the military-industrial complex uh, persuading politicians uh, to get into things that they shouldn't get into. How crucial is that? And uh, it is something that is extremely uh, worrying when you consider you have uh, the robot soldiers coming down the pike uh, and it'll be even more by remote control. If you think drones are a problem, these soldiers that can be uh, robots is just terrifying. And one other thing that exacerbates it is global warming. Uh, the wars are just the opposite of what we really need. So is there a way we can access those points to the public? Well, so if you think about that for a minute, but your point about robots and things, so if you think about where AI is going to take us, okay, one of the things that we could think about is what if you were to program AI and what if it were to learn uh, to recognize the impending behavior of a law of war violation and stop it. Um, you know, I'm thinking in a command center, right? So instead of having AI just give you data, what if it becomes your partner? And what if it recognizes in when it sees all the data coming in that the potential 
for something bad to happen is out there, are we going to allow the AI to stop it? I mean, we keep thinking about how it's going to initiate things. But there's another flip side of this thing. The other thing to consider is our adversaries, particularly the Chinese, are very, very, um, that's the word I'm looking for, enthusiastic about the use of AI. They have a tremendous uh, database of everybody in the country. And, and what AI needs to get better is more data. It learns as it's going. Now, it's not learning off of current military things, but there's still some discussion about how much that's going to affect it. So you're absolutely right. That is going to cause something else to happen. And I, the first big decision is whether or not we are going to stay wedded to a human making decisions or whether we are going to go to a model that is a partnership between an AI and a human, or whether we're going to go to strictly an AI decision making. Those are the three extremes, and I don't know how we're going to, but I, I, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to think about it. We're probably going to back into it, but. Uh. <laughs> In a smaller way, judges are making decisions with AI now. Uh, judges are having to make decisions on civil cases. AI is coming into that slowly. Yeah. I think let's go ahead and take our, our, our final question, and then we'll. Hi there. Um, I have a question. Uh, right after 9-11, the question came out of why do they hate us? And then programs among them, the Masters in Public Diplomacy at USC, which I did, was, well, we're just going to go out and win hearts and minds. So in my mind, in, or in my way of thinking, um, the issue is that we actually don't give a damn about anybody else's culture. We're out there to win their, and them to our way of thinking. And that, I think, is the crux of it. We, we are so convinced of our own exceptionalism that we refuse to see anybody else's differences and respect it. Well, the, the ironic thing is that from, from what Noel was saying a minute ago and from Farrow's experience, the people that are actually on the ground they are not convinced of American exceptionalism. They're seeing this every day. They know what's going on. It's the, it's the politicians that want it's It's this whole power structure. I mean, the fact that, that the President of the United States said, why do they hate us so? I mean, that is so telling that there is so little understanding of, because we look at it through our eyes, right? Hey, these people, they, all, they lived in America. How could you live in America and not love this place? I mean, what's not to like? And, and they, so, trying to understand that, and your point is very well taken, and, I, and it's something that we probably ought to beat harder in the, inside the Pentagon. When we talk about winning the hearts and minds, that, that is exactly true. What we're talking about is winning the hearts and minds to our point of view, as opposed to <laughs> as if there was some other point of view. What, what else could there be? So, Anyone else want to chime in? It's also very difficult to win hearts and minds when you're holding a gun. You know, I mean, I, well, yeah. I don't, you know, I, 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 do, I have, uh, you know, I were on military embeds. Uh, I have seen uh, many uh, American soldiers who genuinely wanted to, to do the right thing there. They weren't mm -hmm. all out, to, uh, you know, to, to do uh to do bad things or to, you know, crush the local population, but they were up against this cultural, linguistic, religious, yeah. all these differences that they, that individual soldiers may have had the good 
you know, the goodwill, but when it, 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 it was larger than them, it's always larger than them. Uh, and it gets tied up in, you know, uh, how the population sees you as a whole, because they don't have really one-on-one -on -one engagement with the soldiers. They have, uh, you know, they see the units coming in and arresting yeah. and whatnot. And, and, you know, the, the policy of debathification, for example, in which the Americans decided that they would dismantle all of Iraq's military and armed forces yeah. because they were loyal to Saddam Hussein. Well, guess what that did? It eliminated an entire population of Sunni men uh, from a livelihood uh, and, and being employed. Uh, I, I won't talk about just the, the insecurity that it created and the, the, the security lapse while it took to create another national army and what it did to Iraq's borders and not. But what it did was it, it, it was the seed, it planted the seed of the insurgency because they now saw the American military as a force that not only came in, but took away their jobs, their livelihood, their pride, their purpose of life. And they were all sitting at home. So what are we going to do? We're going to organize an insurgency. That's how it started. Uh, so, um, well, and, it, the and battle I, of heart and mind is a very difficult one when you're the, you know, when you're the powerful military on the ground. So that that decision was made by one person, Paul Bremer. Paul Bremer, who, yes. Yeah, and he was yes. a political appointee with no background yes. in doing anything. So there's, so therein lies the problem. In Vietnam, the most effective way that we had to conduct the insurgency was actually done by the Marine Corps, and it was called, uh, they were called combined action platoons. And what the Marines did is we took the best and the brightest of our enlisted Marines, and we embedded them in villages in Vietnam. And they literally were, they went native, and that's why they, were, they lived in the villages, and they stayed there for their entire tour. And the, at the end of the year that they did this, the, it was phenomenal how, how pacified that village became. Why? Because they lived there all the time. And they were accused of going native, which was exactly what, uh, the, and the, the guy that directed all this was a Marine three-star named Brute Krulak, who was uh, General Krulak, the Commandant Krulak's father. But that was opposed to what General Westmoreland wanted to do, which was firepower and attrition. He was going to kill all the insurgents and couldn't understand why we were using all these Marines to pacify these villages. So e even when we're making a lot of mistakes, we did some things right, only the bureaucracy crushed it because the, the, we just didn't have an enlightened view of, of how to get there from here. So. I also want to add that we, I mean, Americans view uh, these engagements, they see the military, certainly in Afghanistan and Iraq, as a liberating force. And we forget that the population views the U.S. military as an invading force. Yeah. And they're in the, the contention yeah. between hearts and minds where yeah. you don't see yourself as invaders, but as liberators, and then they don't see you as liberators. They see you as, you know, a military that's invaded their country and a setup and it's very hard to find a middle ground there. Yeah. Okay, folks, well, we are out of time. Um, so this is obviously the first event in this series. The next will be coming in the fall. And the next um, prompt for the panel is what kind of monuments do we deserve? Until then, I would encourage <laughs> you all to um, subscribe to the newsletter, visit the website, subscribe to the podcast, and of course, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Um, but please join me in thanking our esteemed panelists. All right, thank you all so much. Thank you.